outbound investment controls. What's up with that? To discuss, I have on Emily Benson of CSIS and Martin Chordzemper, who's a fellow at the Peterson Institute. Welcome to China Talk, you two. All right, Emily, what's happening? Well, I appreciate uh, the guiding question. Let me just walk through basically the TLDR on how we got here and what things mean. So for the first time ever, the administration this week released an executive order asking the Treasury to close a perceived gap in trade and investment authority. This was under the assumption that we control outbound items, technology, and software with export controls, and that we also screen inbound capital through the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States for national security purposes. That begs a sort of simple and obvious question. So why don't we control outbound capital and know-how to countries of concern that could essentially pose a national security risk? Uh, this is not the first time we've had this discussion. This is not unique to the Biden administration. It surfaced initially in 2017, 2018, during the AGRA firma uh, debates that uh, resulted in a comprehensive reform to these trade and investment authorities in the United States. In the last year or so, the administration has become increasingly keen on getting this thing through. Uh, and talks have really accelerated in the past couple of months. What's interesting is that this executive order was imminent last October. And if you recall, on October 7th, the uh, Bureau of Industry and Security at the U.S. Department of Commerce levied these fairly sweeping export controls on advanced AI chips to China. I think that that had a much greater effect uh, and ripple kind of in a noise way throughout the foreign policy community. And so that had the effect of slowing down this impending executive order. When it slowed down, that created a greater opportunity in the interagency process for additional stakeholders, including uh, people like uh, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to intervene and say, hey, we really want this tool to be sufficiently narrow. We don't want the scope to be too wide. We wanna make sure that it achieves its end goal of protecting U.S. national security while not uh, overly ensnaring our allies. Uh, so talks have been very much under wraps about the past couple of months. What's interesting is that in the month of July, uh, things changed in Congress. There was recently a fairly resounding vote in the Senate uh, that signals a broad bipartisan desire to get something like this finished. And so I think that added increased pressure on the administration to actually get this order out of the door and that's what happened two days ago when Biden signed this EO, directing Treasury to stand up this new program. So basically what it's doing is opening up for public comment uh, this new program to screen outbound investments and capital, basically know-how, into um, semiconductors and microelectronics, artificial intelligence, and quantum technology. Yeah. So I, I, before we kind of get into the details of the of the document and the request for comment, um, I do want to focus on the politics of this because it's weird um, where when you see articles coming out basically every month for an entire calendar year saying something is about to happen. And then like all of a sudden it happens today, not 
<laughs> not last October, not uh, you know, not in March, but um, uh, in 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 August uh, on August 9th of uh, 2023. You know, this became a meme. The Biden China watching community uh, apparently has been fixated on uh, you know, outbound investment screening for the past uh, for the past year, kind of waiting for it to drop. Um, that that dynamic you 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 mentioned, Emily. I want to explore a little more of this, like being potentially teed up to go alongside um, the October 7th uh, semiconductor controls, but then, you know, uh, a, a room for discussion. Uh, but I guess like your your idea is that that was a bigger deal than the folks who creating who created it potentially intended, which then sort of opened the door for voices within the interagency, as well as, um, you know, uh, lobbyists who are concerned about this type of thing to um, to try to make their case that this should be a, a narrower rather than a a bigger, um, uh, a bigger deal. Uh, Martin, Emily, uh, care to expand on the dynamics um, that ultimately led to not the maximalist version of this um, ultimately coming out of uh, the Biden administration? Sure, I can. I can do that. And and just be- before we do that, I want to add to the to the context just one one brief thing to kind of make it concrete, which is the idea is you can't export an advanced semiconductor to China. You can't advance, you know, you can't send them chip design software. You can't send them, you know, equipment that makes the most advanced chips. But you could invest in a company in China that was trying to make advanced chips or make that software. So the idea was there was this loophole where U.S. capital could do what U.S. exports couldn't. And that ultimately the the effect of that would be that over time, U.S. capital would help China become so good at making its own stuff that it wouldn't need U.S. stuff anymore and then U.S. export controls would be neutered. So I think that's really that's really the core concern that this is uh, trying to uh, trying to address. And so very much related to October 7th. On the politics, it's been really fascinating to watch because the initial proposals from Congress were really, really, really broad and did not get traction. And there was an interesting partisan divide here, very different than usual, where actually Republicans Some were very much for this and were driving factors behind uh, the idea of having this outbound regime. And other Republicans were like, absolutely no way. This is something that expands the power of government and gives them the ability to, you know, ask questions about all sorts of investments that we haven't done before. We suddenly put like capital control in the U.S. and we're the open free flow of capital kind of country. So uh, that led to a lot of the opposition. And so in a sense, the Biden administration was in a tough position where the, the legislative branch couldn't get really get a uh, a law passed that that everyone could agree to, and they kind of said, "Okay, Biden administration, do something yourself." And by the way, we're not exactly there's no political consensus on exactly what it should cover, and that makes it really really challenging to get something. And this is you know the the impact of having an excessively broad or poorly written version of this would be uh, enormous. It would, you know, if you make this way too broad, it could bog down, you know, a U.S. investment in allied countries that have a subsidiary in China. It could lead to a huge financial decoupling between the two countries that was not intended and could really damage U.S. ability to access like Chinese technology and Chinese know-how. It could bog down U.S. firms that have operations in China. Uh, It could damage the U.S. position at the global financial center if everyone thinks, okay, if I list my stock in the U.S., then suddenly they're going to not let me invest in China. I mean, there were tons of awful scenarios that could have been the case if they rushed something through. So 
So I think it's really positive that they took it, took it slow, were really careful, and are asking lots of questions to make sure that they don't get us into these nightmare scenarios. So, so first, I mean, I guess like the, 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 the sort of like, it's not even Romney, like the, like the Republican opposition to this was curious um, because, you know, th there is this like weird fissure where like on the one hand, the, the GOP is very, um, very focused on being like more anti-China than, um, than the Biden administration. But there are some leadership of the Financial Services Committee in the House, as well as as well as others in the GOP. Yeah, we're worried about this. So, Martin, maybe like a sincerity check, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, like it wasn't it was this is sort of news to me that there are Republicans who are stressed out about uh, a more aggressive decoupling than the one we currently have. But I do think um, it, it did surface some really interesting uh, dynamics that may end up playing out, uh, you know, if potentially a Republican gets in the um, uh, um, uh, gets in the White House and, 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 and the GOP tries to sort of uh, uh, take a more aggressive uh, uh, tack towards China. Yeah, I, I do think there's there's real sincerity there because, you know, there's a longstanding tradition in the Republican Party of being suspicious of expansion of government, you know, red tape, regulations, oversight of firms. And then that can kind of clash with the idea that we, you know, that these many firms are doing things that are helping China in ways that hurt U.S. national security. If you look at the arguments that they, they made, some of them are along those lines. Another is an actually an argument I've been making for a while that Pat McHenry, the chair of the House Financial Services Committee made, which says, we are protecting China from our national security threat. Uh, and what he means by that is, we spent a lot of time with, uh, with CFIUS, the, uh, which reviews inbound investment into the United States, to say, we don't want any Chinese people on the board of sensitive U.S. firms. We don't want the, their VC investment. We don't want anything because we're worried they're going to learn all sorts of secrets which could hurt national security. And at the same time, we're saying, we don't want any Americans on the board of Chinese AI companies or any companies that are sensitive. Uh, and it's like, well, wait a second. If we think it's going to hurt U.S. national security uh, to have the Chinese on our board, wouldn't it uh, harm Chinese national security to have our people on their boards? Like, wouldn't they learn interesting things about what's happening in Chinese uh, sensitive markets when they make connections, which could be really interesting? And that gets down to whether you, you know, have this assumption that the U.S. is ahead of China on everything and that, you know, any interaction with China uh, benefits China more than the U.S. Or if you have a more nuanced view, which I think Pat McHenry had to some extent, uh, where he says, there are a lot of things we can learn from China where they are doing really interesting things in these sensitive technologies, not necessarily things that we like and agree with, but that U.S. investors being involved in these firms could potentially benefit U.S. national security as well. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, Martin, and something that's worth keeping in mind when we explore a potential expansion of export controls and investment screening. But the, the more targeted de-risking or decoupling in certain high-tech sectors that you invite with certain policy changes, the less visibility you have over time into foreign high-tech sectors. And that can actually have adverse effects when we're trying to figure out where we are maintaining a leading edge or where China might be pulling ahead. And those data points are extremely uh, important in formulating policies that can combat the current threat environment. And with reduced visibility, we just naturally have 
uh, less knowledge about what's happening in those sectors. And so that's sort of a negative downside of additional controls. To, to push back on that, my hope is that the U.S. government has more data points than Michael Moritz sitting on the board of ByteDance or whatever. Um, for us to like have a for, for the U.S. government to have a sense of relative capabilities. I, I, I totally buy and take the sort of broader point that um, today and definitely, you know, five, 10 years in the future, um, the U.S. is not going to be the dominant player in every technology. You know, this has been internalized deeply by folks in the tele and the telecom community with the with the with the rise of Huawei. But and this is going to happen in other places. We're seeing it in electric vehicles. We're seeing it in, in sort of all sorts of like new energy stuff. And we may end up seeing it in in in, in AI and 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 um, uh, you know, semiconductor design, manufacturing equipment, what have you. Grappling with that is really challenging and tricky. And I guess the argument that this this uh, executive order makes is that, um, you know, while that is while that is important and there's sort of like information to be gained, the sort of know how and knowledge transfer and access to global markets and future funding um, rounds or what have you that having, um, you know, Western, uh, you know, seed series A, series C funding gives you like there's a net negative trade off when you're look when you're trying to balance like boosting and when you're trying to like trade off boosting like an adversary's techno industrial capability versus like understanding what the heck is going on across the Pacific. Yeah, I, I the the counter argument to that, uh, which is a completely valid argument is uh, I am one that's historical and one that's a, a question mark. The historical one is at one point, the NSA uh, was against China having digital telecoms and wanted to keep them in analog because it was easier to snoop on them. And then when they figured out that China would get uh, digital telecoms from someone else, they said, absolutely, American companies sell them the digital stuff because we know where the vulnerabilities are and we know exactly what their capabilities are because we know exactly what equipment is going in there. And if we ban it, they're going to get the equipment anyway and we're going to lose that disability. So I think there's an analog to that all over in this space. And then the present one is... How indispensable really is U.S. venture capital to Chinese firms in these sensitive sectors? That's really, I think, the key question. And it's not clear to me that uh, just how much of a benefit they get from this versus, say, a Chinese venture capitalist who spent many years and cut their teeth at a U.S. venture capital firm. You know, I, I think we agree that the capital is pretty interchangeable. The know-how and network side, I just really haven't seen uh, outlined a really rigorous argument that says they're getting a really huge boost here from having, you know, one U.S. venture capital company in one of their funding rounds versus uh, versus that not happening. I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a revealed preference, though, right, Martin? Um, I think that's I, even even though, you know, there's there's no data set around it. Like the fact is, like these funding rounds keep happening with like the hottest uh, the hottest firms, which are ostensibly very much aligned with the five year plan of self-reliance or what have you. And then on the sort of like, all right, let's hook China on Cisco thing. My sense is that ship has sailed um, uh, to like a pretty large extent with just like having had um, CTE and Huawei and October 7th, like it just strikes me as like really odd that this is like a playbook you could really end up expecting to be able to run 
um, over the coming uh, decades on anything that actually matters all that much. Yeah, one thing that Martin said about the lack of data on this kind of know-how, uh, the people-to-people transfers, if you will, I think that's interesting, and this is obviously part of the Treasury Department's intent is to stand up this mandatory notification regime so that they can collect more data. I think it's worth noting that the ANPRM from Treasury does not require prior prior notice of a transaction. It says, please notify us within 30 days of having closed the transaction. And so that's a very concrete signal that this is to collect more information. Of course, um, there are the national security considerations in these very targeted prohibitions. But if you step back for a second, and I think Martin asks a very good question about what the data will reveal and if any of this will actually bear fruit in the long run, will it be worth it? Uh, Will the nature and volume of transactions uh, essentially substantiate the uh, entire standing up of this new program at Treasury? I'm not sure, but on a philosophical level, what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is whether or not there is a gap in current U.S. statutory authority. And I think there probably is. And so let's get more information. If there is a viable risk, let's deal with it. And I think it's a little bit early and the public comments will reveal exactly the contours of what this needs to look like. And I think also the public comments will reveal which companies uh, who are dealing in these three covered sectors are particularly exposed. So I am curious uh, for my own sake to gather anecdotes from that process. All right, so let's take a step back and uh, talk about what what dropped on Wednesday. Martin, let's do the uh, the the overview of what you of what was in there and what you thought was particularly notable. Yeah, so uh, it it's actually very narrow in the sense that uh, unlike the October seventh rule, nothing takes effect right away. So when the October seventh rules dropped, it was like you need to comply with this right now or you're in serious trouble. And this was a uh, starting now, we may ask you for some info about things you're doing, but we're not going to block anything. There isn't going to be a formal notification regime started up yet. Instead, it was here is a proposed idea of this regime uh, and a tons of really well thought through questions about exactly how it should be scoped, where the question, you know, what uh, what should be included, what should not. The proposal is very clear. This is not like Cepheus. Uh, for those that don't know about Cepheus, Cepheus is like, case by case, it's really not clear. You usually have to ask a lawyer to say, do I have to file with Cepheus and report this transaction to the U.S. government? Um, Should I do that? And then getting through is like a really lawyer-intensive, very expensive process, whereas this is designed, and it requires a lot of U.S. government resources, where people are pouring over every detail of the transaction to see, you know, should we block this or force changes to protect national security? This is really different. This is very simple you either are banned from making the transaction uh based on pretty clear guidelines uh there are some areas of you know lack of clarity that hopefully will be cleared up by the time they finalize it but that's pretty clear then there's and that's really really tiny it's only in advanced chips essentially what you couldn't export to china under october 7th uh in quantum and then in ai software which is primarily uh primarily or exclusively they haven't determined which one yet used for military surveillance cyber applications so it's pretty narrow uh just those three areas anything else you can still do if this was passed as proposed 
Then the second part is a notification regime, which is a bit broader. It's kind of like anything in the chip sector. And some applications of AI, like facial recognition, robotics, so think like drone swarms, that kind of thing, and a few others. That's a little bit broader. Um, and then that's the AI side. Yeah, so the, those two. There's nothing notification related to quantum. And really, that's it. Every other kind of investment you would make into China, and by the way, this applies to uh, only kind of equity type investments. So we're talking investing in the stock of a Chinese firm, investing in debt you could convert to equity, uh, standing up a subsidiary uh, in China that's a Chinese entity, or doing a JV, uh, standing up a JV that creates a, uh, a Chinese um, Chinese entity. So that part is is pretty uh, pretty narrow actually. And then there are some, you know, specific things we can get into about scoping a little bit later around the 50% rule that Emily and I have already had some back and forth uh, on. But really it's like, you know, it's ban, notification, or nothing. There isn't really a case-by-case -case basis uh, kind of thing. And it exempts kind of investments in public securities. So if you're traded on a stock exchange, uh, not going to affect you. By the way, we can already ban that kind of investment with the Chinese military company list, which the Treasury also manages. Um, and it doesn't include like index funds and doesn't include LP investment, uh, at least most LP investments into Chinese uh, into venture funds that might uh, invest in, in China, as long as you're not you know, secretly acting like a GP and kind of directing the investment behind, uh, behind the scenes as an LP. So pretty narrow, pretty small. I think that makes sense considering, you know, we don't know how big the problem is. We know there's a loophole. It might be a really small loophole. Uh, uh, and if it's a really small loophole, that's what we discover with the data, then it'll make sense to have a small, clear regime fixing a small uh, loophole. Yeah, if I could just add one thing based on Martin's helpful comment about the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, I think the uh, one potentially valid uh, criticism of this new program is a fear that this new program will balloon and that it will look like CFIUS, which essentially functions like a black box. So I was talking to a longtime CFIUS lawyer recently who said that certain cases that go through this review process, which don't really have, you know, this, the CFIUS doesn't function with a clear risk taxonomy. So it is a case by case. Uh, evaluation, but certain cases can be viewed by up to 300 people spread across different agencies in the U.S. government. So if you're uh, wait, how many how many people do you think have looked at the, the TikTok thing? <laughs> Way more thousand. than 300. I think we can be sure. <laughs> yeah, well, this this invites a very practical problem on the human level, because if you're a young, ambitious staffer and you want to prove to your boss hey, I'm very attuned to national security considerations, then you can probably find a national security concern in any transaction. And so there are very valuable lessons from the CFIUS process, which has ballooned over time, to make sure that that does not happen to the same program. And so while I view these concerns as, um, I think, well-founded, Everyone knows the problems with CFIUS, and that creates a huge opportunity to fix those problems going forward. And I'm pretty optimistic that with the right institutional design features, we can make sure that this does stay surgical. 
The concern, of course, is whether or not the scope would expand over time beyond these emerging technologies. And that's one question that's come up very uh, frequently in the last couple of days is, so why these technologies? Yeah. I think there is clear reason to see how these could advance Chinese military capabilities. But there are also less sexy examples of where we're not covering these types of investments, for example, in Chinese shipbuilding. And I think in the coming months, especially during the public comment period, we'll see some of the more hawkish voices chime in and say, hey, why don't you also look at shipbuilding? Why don't you also look at these other analog sectors? And so that's potentially one immediate problem that could result in a fairly swift expansion of coverage. But I think to the extent that it's possible to avoid that outcome, the administration really does want to keep this very surgically focused on these three sectors. I mean, there's there's two ways this can go wrong, right? It could be um, too big and burdensome, or it could be too small and not get at the problem. And and my sort of question I'm putting, I, I don't really understand, is if all we're going to do is like notify and collect data, um, why does that have to be only three technologies? And maybe this is, and maybe the way you talk this out is like a pilot thing. But look, the White House, um, uh, I guess in May of last year. Uh, uh, the White House recently put out a um, you know critical emerging technologies in this of which there are like 15. Um, we've got engineering materials, we've got gas turbine engine technologies, we've got directed energy, um, we've got uh, uh, renewable energy generation and storage, um, you know all this other stuff. Um, but sort of this the 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 document ended up only focusing on on three, and I want to kind of go through them for a second because I do think the way that they specified what was in these technologies was super interesting. So basically with um, with the semiconductor one, it was probably the probably the most predictable. Basically, like they, they kind of copy pasted a lot of what was in the October 7th and said, look, if you're doing anything under over these thresholds or in these types of industries that we're trying to control, like that's not cool, we're not going to let you do it. The quantum stuff, um, you know, we haven't yet uh, had a, a big export control around quantum. Um, they specified components of a quantum computer, quantum sensors, as well as information and quantum networking. And also kind of like asked a lot of questions um, in the comment period being like, did we get it right? Like, is there any quantum stuff we missed? Um, and then AI um, was sort of the most, um, the most curious, I think, because there's a big, there's a big sort of um, decision and, and, and kind of open discussion within the, the broader AI, you know, commercial research community, whether it's going to be foundational models or sort of like specialized models that are going to be the ones that are that will rule the world. And the in the tack that the that the the uh, the Treasury used to frame it was focusing on defining this stuff as specialized models. So um, Martin alluded to it. It said AI systems designed to be used for specific end uses um, with impacts or consequences of the following end uses. And then we have you know military, mass surveillance, digital forensic tools, penetration testing, control of robotic systems, facial recognition. Um, question mark. Um, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, but but sort of that model is very different than like GPT-4, which is multi-model, which is multimodal. Um, and I'm sure could like, you know, if you if you gave it run of the road, like classify Uyghur versus Han faces or whatever, like horrible thing you want to do. And the, the like, if it ends up being, um, you know, if AI ends up developing in the direction that like, you know, 
models for specific end uses aren't really like the key, and the key is just having like the biggest, baddest model that um, is foundational, and you can apply to all these different, um, you know, particularly concerning things. Like, is it is it the wrong focus for the U for the U.S. government if AI is like all important in this like you know, the, the, the key dual use technology of the future to only be focusing on these like also RANs when, you know, the equivalent of the of the uh, anthropic or open AI in China gets as much China, uh, Western investment and know how as they can uh, as they possibly desire. Yeah, I think you pointed out something that's worth mentioning, which is that the specificity of each of these is a little bit different. So semiconductors, we've had them for a long time. Everyone's very familiar with what they do, how they work, uh, how they're used as inputs. Uh, we've learned a lot of lessons, especially in the last year, post October 7th, about the semiconductor supply chains and industry overall. You get to the quantum part of this and PRM. And what's interesting is that quantum is so new. It's um, not really market ready yet. It's still unclear which modality of quantum will have the most national security implications over time. But I think the administration here has tried to identify which types of quantum modalities it regards as most, um, most applicable in the national security context. What, one interesting observation on quantum is that because it's so new, any government intervention or additional restrictions in quantum risks tipping the scales in favor of one certain modality or another. So you say right now our bet is that quantum sensing will be will hold the most promise for military effectiveness for the USG. I'm not totally convinced and I'm not sure that everyone else says that that's the right way to do it because there could be other quantum areas um, that might have prevailed more naturally under conditions with less restrictions. So. Um, I think that's worth bearing in mind. If you get to AI, one thing I was really looking for was this definition of AI. This is something that's come up a lot in the build up to the release of the ANPRM, which is, okay, so how are you gonna define AI? Is this um, basically software? Is it not? Uh, what does it really mean? Because AI can kind of be anything right now. And so maybe I could just uh, read very quickly the basic definition that they provide. I think it's very interesting. So Treasury Department is considering defining an AI system as an engineered or machine-based system that can, for a set of given objectives, generate outputs such as predictions, recommendations, or decisions influencing real or virtual environments. So AI systems are designed to operate with varying levels of autonomy. That's pretty broad, and I'm very curious to see what emerges in the public comment period because I'm sure uh, big tech firms, small tech firms alike will have a lot of thoughts on how to make that uh, a little bit narrower. I think the burden here is that the US government doesn't really have one solid definition of AI. And so depending on how this shakes out, this could kind of pull ahead as the definition that we all lean on when we're talking about um, AI in the international context. That's really helpful. And, and Jordan, I wanna reference something that you, uh, that brings up a, a philosophical question in what you said, you know, there are all these technologies that US government says are critical. Why are we only controlling little bits of them? And I think the way I think about this is the following. Uh, there are lots of really sensitive critical technologies. The US isn't ahead on all of them and putting controls on them can actually slow down US uh, investment in them, US uh, development in them because it might cut off you know, revenue, 
Uh, and in areas where China is ahead or we're somewhat, you know, or where it's a little bit mixed, uh, if you put controls on these things and cut off the U.S. and China, it's not necessarily good for U.S. interests. You don't necessarily want to decouple every single sensitive technology area uh, unless you weigh the costs and benefits of it related to that specific technology and determine that actually China is getting the better deal out of the engagement. Um, and so I think it, that's why it makes sense to really be careful with which technologies we do. And, you know, let's say we shut off U.S. and China battery like connections, which is something, you know, new green energy was something that was brought up early on in this process when they were considering putting outbound controls on it. It's like, you know, actually, U.S. probably can learn more from China in how to do batteries well than than vice versa, from my understanding. So cutting that off actually kneecaps the U.S more than uh, than china and that's just one example and probably the most prominent but i i my argument is we have to be really careful here and especially because we're acting alone if we're the only one to control it and someone else from korea japan taiwan um europe can just step in and provide the same investment or the same know-how or the same good then we like we took a great moral stand but we didn't actually do anything uh to harm china and we cut off U.S. firms from investment opportunities, from revenue, uh, and uh, and disadvantage ourselves versus others. So I think that's that's why I am super pro this be careful uh, approach. In, in the October seventh context, as uh, as as Emily has has covered in in um, uh, in shocking depth over the past year, um, you've had a um, you know basically the U.S. has been able to get the key players to go along. Um, with these with these semiconductor export controls, and I wonder, I'm I'm curious, Emily, is it is it fair potentially to um, to read into the the ultimate conservatism of the document that was released, perhaps an understanding that you know maybe the other you know G7 countries weren't quite as on board uh, with these investment controls as they were with the export controls. So historical context here. In the post-World War II period, the U.S. took a leading role on COCOM, which was basically trying to prevent the outflow of high technologies to the Warsaw Pact. Uh, when that disintegrated in the early 90s, the U.S. took another leadership role in standing up the Vosner Arrangement, which is the most comprehensive uh, dual-use and conventional arms institution that we have today. I think in a lot of ways, we have a historical precedent where the U.S. has said, look, there's a strategic reason to get something done that's also a national security threat. So what the U.S. is doing is kind of taking a leadership role that it has always historically assumed. And so it's not necessarily new in that context. What is interesting is that several international partners already have some sort of statutory authority to screen outbound capital flows. Taiwan, Japan, Korea each have tools, but they look a lot different. And so Japan's uh, authority, as I understand it at least, and as Rhodium colleagues have noted, it covers primarily outbound investments in fisheries, leather goods, which I would love to know the story on that one, and then military products. And so what the U.S. is asking actually is sort of a sea change, even for countries that already have a similar mechanism. But if you look at uh, statements from European Commission President von der Leyen in March, she's asking the European Union to stand up their own mechanism. I think 
folks in Brussels were like, oh my gosh, we're understaffed. We don't really want to do this at this particular juncture. Uh, the U.S. tried to get a resounding endorsement of this new tool and the G7 uh, leaders summit statement coming out of Hiroshima in May. And it wasn't exactly an endorsement, but it said, hey, we jointly recognize that this could potentially fill an important gap in the future. The European economic security strategy document that came out in June, basically copy and paste of the same language from the G7. Then in July, Germany announced its strategy on China, which is a really fascinating document. I encourage everyone to read. That also says, hey, potentially in the future, this app on tool could be useful. But overall, allies are very concerned about the potential extraterritorial reach of the tool. I think they're also curious to learn more about the underlying national security justifications. That's a problem that's come up a lot in the wake of October 7th, which is that I think the administration could maybe strengthen its arguments a little bit and clarify uh, in a very straightforward manner. Hey, these are the concerns. This is the reason that we're standing up this new tool. So this is a great opportunity for, in particular, the White House to go out and say, here's what we know, here's what led to this outcome, this is exactly why we want your buy-in. So if they can provide that type of information, that'll really advance the discussion among foreign allies. But the first partner who is coming down the pike with a more detailed plan for how to move forward is the European Commission. And we anticipate some sort of work plan uh, to drop in December. So I'm especially looking forward to seeing uh, just how detailed that proposal is. Uh, Martin, what else you got? There is this really interesting part where it says uh, that if you if you have a company who has a subsidiary that is in China and working on one of these technologies that either it needs to be notified or is prohibited, uh, you can still invest in that parent company if the activity, uh, if the Chinese subsidiary doing whatever uh, is covered by this thing is less than 50% of, of its business. And it uses a few indicators to get that. And there's some debate about whether this means you could invest in a Chinese automaker with a small chip design subsidiary that designs chips for, it, uh, for its cars, just like Apple has a chip design subsidiary, which designs chips for, uh, for Apple devices if that chip design thing is relatively small. And I think this is really crucial to the allies point because uh, if you have a Korean company, let's say, that has a Chinese semiconductor uh, subsidiary, then you don't want necessarily, you wanna be really careful about whether, uh, to what extent you apply these rules to US investment in that Korean company. Because you don't wanna bog down a bunch of investment at allies, but you also don't want to uh, to make it really easy to get around this by using sham intermediaries, uh, right? By like creating some shell company in the Cayman Islands, you invest in that, and then you make you know all the covered investments you wanted to, you know, too easy. So that's really where a lot of the rubber is going to hit the road on this: is how do you make sure you stop the sneaky shell company game or merger of say a sportswear company with a chip design company? So that the uh, you know the group company has less than fifty percent of its revenue from chip, uh, therefore you can invest in it, and the money just gets you know then shifted right down to the chip design company. Uh, China's government knows really well how to do those kind of sham uh, sham mergers if they want to. So this is going to be one of the trickiest parts of it, and they have to be really careful 
to thread that needle and not you know hit a lot of uh, of allied in, investment so that's going to be one of the main things to watch is how does that provision develop through public comment and lots of congressional pressure to expand this thing and uh, and make it hit a lot more investment than it looks like it would now so I want to close on, the, on this final question, which we've raised earlier, but I think is going to be the key question for policymakers um, you know, in, the coming, in the coming years, which is what to do when Chinese firms are ahead of you technologically. And there are like a few different pathways, right? You can, you can, you can sort of take the one that Martin is, is sort of alluding to of, you know, let's try to partner with them, learn their secrets, do the, you know, technological upgrading game that all East Asian um, countries have done so well over the past few decades. Um, you could take a playbook out of, uh, you know, what China's done of, you know, some combination of industrial espionage and, and, um, uh, and, uh, and government support, which is, you know, not super foreign to, um, uh, to American and, 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 and European history, even though for the past few decades, America has been like very much um, opposed to any sort of this, you know, uh, you know up under the board, like uh, uh, technology secret stealing or what have you. Um, uh, and then, you know, there's, there's this other like big variable of like what Beijing is going to do now that it, um, now that it today and tomorrow is going to have real leverage that it doesn't currently with respect to the West, you know, when it comes to doing export controls of its own. Um, it's going to be a fascinating dynamic to, um, uh, uh, to think about and ponder. Yeah, I think the realization that China might be pulling ahead right now is, you know, that meme where it's like panic with the little the head. It's sort of in that stage, like, oh my gosh, we're not the leader in every single technology ever. That is uncomfortable. And there's this piece in foreign policy that's actually quite interesting about how the concept of multipolarity makes the US fundamentally uncomfortable. And I think that's worth unpacking going forward because it's so sadly true and so obvious. Uh, and I think we're really in that stage of, all right, we're acknowledging finally, that we actually are not the leader in all of these technologies. And what that means is that we have to have an affirmative agenda for pulling ahead where we can. And this is where the need for a solid trade policy comes in, and it really plays into the promote side, not only the protect side of the pillar. Going back to the European Economic Security Strategy from June, they actually added a third P, so you have um, protect, promote, and then partner. And that's very think tanky in some ways, but at the end of the day, it's really saying, look, we need a solid agenda for getting buy-in over a long time horizon with our close partners. What that basically means is who has what? Who has uh, the talent, uh, the actual critical mineral inputs? Who has the architecture that can help us build up this new structure going forward so that we reduce risk we maintain efficiencies and cost effectiveness where possible. We maintain open trade and investment where possible. But at the end of the day, our national security is better protected than it currently is. And squaring the circle on that is very tricky, especially when you have competing constituencies. And like anything in foreign affairs, your perspective on how this all should go down depends on where you're seated. And so I think we're really at the beginning of asking that next tranche of questions of how we put into action all of this in a way that creates durable buy-in. 
I love that. Uh, I love that idea of Americans being like temperamentally uninclined for multipolarity. It's. So I've been sp spending a fair amount of time thinking about uh, you know Japan in the '80s because that is sort of the last moment that this happened. Where uh, I mean, I guess it sort of happened in like the '40s and, and '50s with the USSR, but like that pretty clearly was like just not necessarily going to be the case of like uh, the Soviet Union being a being a you know leading edge technological competitor. But you know the the Japan threat was real. The irony, of course, is th th sitting back today, it's like, this country was like a treaty ally, ally, it didn't have a military, and was like completely dependent on the U.S. and ultimately, you know, would do whatever America uh, wanted when push came to shove over the course of the 80s when it came to, you know, restricting its own exports and changing its currency policy and opening its markets and and, and what have you. And, you know, now the, now the dynamic is very different. I think that the sort of partnership angle um, something that Gerard de Pippo, I think, uh, mentioned on, on China Talk um, is that, you know, at the end of the day, America plus friends for the next century, um, as long as the friend architecture is the same, is going to be like two thirds of the global economy. And China plus friends is probably going to top out somewhere between like 25 percent and, and, and a third. And as long as you keep that in mind, these sorts of dependencies on net will much favor like the G7 and like whoever else, uh, you know, is able to really hit it big in the 21st century um, than, you know, China plus Kazakhstan and, 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 and Burma. Um, so with that as kind of like the lodestar, um, it, it, it makes these challenges a bit less daunting, daunting when you're only looking at, oh man, like look at all the, the, the ships and, and, and solar panels and electric vehicles that are coming out of China. Um, Martin, uh, 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 take us out, please. Yeah, so uh, I really agree with that partner's point, and I think it's crucial. And that's why one reason that if you take these restrictions too far and get too extraterritorial, you start to alienate the friends, and then you have a much harder time building a coalition when it really matters. And you have to, as she said, really sell the national security justification, and they have to they have to buy it. And this is really tricky because sometimes the U.S. thinks rightly it needs to lead by example and kind of push other countries that don't want to incur any costs along. Um, but other times, you know, it has to restrain itself and not be viewed as overusing the tools. And in regard to overusing the tool, I think one of the things that makes us so nervous about this is that China may use the same kind of tools that we use when we dominate uh, on us. And we have shown that we are absolutely willing when we think it affects our national security or under the Trump administration you know, what affects our commercial interests and tariffs and all that, uh, that we will we will weaponize the key nodes that we have in the supply chain. And we have really good reason to think that China would do the exact same thing if it uh, if it were to dominate in these areas. So I think there's a little bit of irony in there. Of course, we're a democracy. We supposedly, you know, we talk about upholding liberal order. They don't really have that. It's not the equivalent thing. But the example that we have set sometimes with these tools is something that China is looking at and uh, might follow in ways that we uh, that we don't like. Yeah, I mean that that feels to me like the like the the Democrat Republican like oh yeah like we would never you know hold up a Supreme Court justice where like it's obvious that the other side would and they don't care. Let's just let's just end it there. Um, uh, 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 Emily Amazing Martin, you guys have a, wait, wait, do you guys have a uh, outbound investment screening song for us to go out on? Or how about just like bureaucracies moving really slowly song? It could be like lean back. <laughs> like lean out of the China investment. <laughs> oh my God. All right. I'll... What's yeah, a Kansas City no, song? No, no, that's ideas. all I can come up with. 
Um, a Kansas man. I don't know. They're all like really gangster rap. Uh, Sign of the Times, Harry Styles. Oh. Oh, but there's also, they say, and do the walk away. Do the walk away from your Chinese investments and lean back. And lean back. <laughs> I'm ending this. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.